Good morning, Grace. It's a privilege to read God's Word with you this morning. This morning we're going to read Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For it makers trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, church. I hope you see what a gift it is that God has given us, the local church to be able to sing and share with one another the good news week in and week out. Where would we be if we were not able to sing the the truths that we just sung, right? Aren't aren't they not just a reminder, but don't they bolster you? Don't Don't they help you understand this is who we are? This is who we are. Man, it's good to be with you all, church. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us, all of you. We're in the middle of a series in this Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Uh, He is a prophet that faced a lot of evil in his day. Evil in his own people, uh, evil in the world, evil in his own heart. And he didn't know what to do with it all. And so he, he goes to God with his questions. He goes to God with his pain, with his, his trials, his, his doubts. And God leads him through this journey. And that's the, the whole book is really a journey of, of God leading Habakkuk from why to worship. In chapter 1, he starts with the why question. Why is there so much evil, God? Why are you not doing something about this evil? And then he moves from why to waiting. Waiting. 
Right? And he, and he goes up on the watch post and he kind of, he's waiting for God to respond and then God does respond and now he moves from, from, from waiting to woes. God speaks woes to Babylon. And after these woes in chapter 3, he will finally arrive at this posture of worship. Today we're looking at the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. How do we live in evil times? That's the question. How do we live in evil times? I don't have to convince you that we live in evil times. And part of what God is showing Habakkuk is that the evil out there is actually the same evil in here. And that's hard to, for us to wrestle with. That inside each of us, there's an evil that is lurking. The Bible calls it sin. If you're not a Christian, you're like, why do you guys talk about sin so much? We call it what you will. Evil, wrong, bad things. There, there's wickedness, whatever you want to call it. It, it resides inside of us. And, and here's what is absolutely clear from this text. And is that in God's economy, sin, evil, injustice will fully and rightfully be punished whether here on earth or in the final day of judgment. It will be punished. It's certain. And that's the rub for us. That's the rub when we read a text like this and it's all judgment. Most people today struggle with the idea of God's judgment. Even as Christians, we squirm when we hear of God's declaration of woes and judgment. He's going to destroy them. Right? We want, we want a God who's a father, who loves us. We want a God who's a friend. We want a God who's a redeemer, right? We want, a, we want someone who forgives us, who, who heals our wounds, who shows mercy when we fail him. And, and he is like, that is our God, isn't it? But he is also a judge. And that makes us uncomfortable. We don't like that. We have great respect for human judges, don't we? There's a kind of an awe. They're kind of put on a pedestal. There's, there's an honor given to them. But here's the thing. While we respect judges, we never want to be in their presence. Right? Who, anyone here a friend with a judge? Right? Maybe a couple of lawyers are in church, but I don't even know if they're friends with them. Right? Judges, judges make us feel inherently guilty and unworthy. Have you ever been in a courtroom? Ever stand before a judge for something very minor? Maybe a speeding violation? I'm just saying, maybe you. I don't know. Me, maybe. Look, it doesn't matter. I'm, you know, seven over, 10, 10 miles over the speed that you get to. It doesn't matter. You go in that courtroom and you stand up and you, by you, I mean me, my knees are knocking. Because I, I know if I say something dumb, if I say the wrong thing, this person has the ability to throw me in jail, to do something very harsh to me. I feel unworthy. We feel unworthy. And yet one of the most repeated teachings in the Bible is this. God is a judge. And his judgment is certain. And we may not like the idea of God as judge, but let me ask you this. Isn't our world crying out for justice? We may not want to judge, but we do want justice. When we see someone uh, not being held accountable for something they do wrong, we ask, why are they getting away with this? Why are they getting off the hook? Anytime you see something in the world and you say, that's not fair. 
that's wrong. Something should be done. You're longing for justice. You're revealing this innate sense that, that something wrong does deserve a consequence. Where do you think that comes from? We are made in God's image. We want justice. The problem is, most of us want justice for everyone except whom? Ourselves. Let's look at this text and wrestle with the certainty of God's judgment as we see and see why it is meant to actually give us hope. Lesson number one. Don't be, don't be mistaken. God will punish evil. That's what we see in this text. Don't be mistaken. God will punish evil. God has already revealed to Habakkuk in chapter 1 that Babylon is going to come down and ravage the land of Israel or land of Judah and take the people into exile. He already told him that. And Habakkuk laments this revelation. It made no sense at all how God could punish the evil in his own people by sending a greater evil. You see, Habakkuk was saying, God, there's evil in our own people. We're treating each other poorly. Do something. And God says, I will do something. I'm going to send a greater evil, Babylon. They're going to punish my own people and take them away. And Habakkuk says, that's not what I was thinking. And, 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 and Habakkuk, God shows Habakkuk in many ways through many illustrations that, that, that Babylon is going to come and they're going to seem invincible. They're going to seem unstoppable. He describes them in terms, if, you, if, you've, if you've been tracking with this, uh, that they're almost uh, in, yeah, untouchable. Think about the worst bad guys in whatever movies or stories you, you like to watch or, or read. Some of them, they build them up to be almost invincible, right? Thanos in, in, in Avengers, right? Untouchable. Voldemort in Harry Potter. You pick your, pick your worst bad guy and you read about him and you, and you watch, you like, that is pure evil and why can't anyone stop them? But here in this text, today, God makes it clear that there is one more powerful than Babylon. And he will judge them for their evil. God offers five woes directly against Babylon. And, and notice verse 6, it actually comes from the mouth of the very people that they have destroyed and ravaged. Woe has the idea of lament. It, it, it's, act, it's almost always used to describe God's judgment. It has the idea, almost like the idea of shame. Woe to Babylon, almost like shame on you. Isaiah says, woe is me, right? When he sees God in, in his temple, shame on me, I'm done, I'm undone. He's lamenting. The first woe, so we're going to look at these five woes and see how they connect First woe is the woe for their Babylon's selfish ambition. Verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. They acquired goods dishonestly. Right? They would go through a land, they'd take everything they want, and they'd burn the rest. And the Babylonians were known for their greed. They robbed other nations and they amassed a ton of wealth. And you might be quick to say, but that's not me. I've never done that. But isn't there a temptation in our society that's drawing you to constantly want more, constantly get more, constantly thinking about how do I look out for number one? Selfish ambition. 
We're driven to want more and more without considering at all who might get hurt in the process. I want something cheap, no matter how, what it costs the people who make it. We're driven. And the warning here is to those who think they're invincible, God is saying, you're not. They're not. And he literally says, God will turn the tables. Verse 7 and 8. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake will make you tremble, and then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. God literally turns the tables. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us that God is not blind to the evils of humanity. God will exact the appropriate punishment at the appointed time. That's verse 3 when when God told Habakkuk, write this vision down. This is the actual vision now. And he says, wait for it. It will not lie. It will not hasten. Wait for it. It will happen at the appointed time. God is saying, judgment is certain. Look, listen, Christian, you might look around and see individuals or institutions, even governments that take advantage of people for selfish gain. And God is saying, don't be mistaken. I'm not blind. I see the evil. I see all evil. And I will not forget what is being done. I will punish all evil. The second woe is that of false security. He condemns Babylon for for not just taking what doesn't belong to them, but for building a false sense of security for themselves. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. They think they can take their stolen wealth and build houses and build empires and be so, so, so secure they'll be safe from all harm. We do this in different ways. We do whatever we can to protect ourselves from harm or disaster, right? And that's not bad. That's not bad at all. But if we do it with this attitude that I'm in control, that I can build a nest egg that can withstand all the fluctuations of the market, and and I can buy a house in, in such a good neighborhood to protect my family from all crime, at some point we think we've arrived and you can use your wealth to protect against all harm. And if you've, if you've fallen into that mindset, you, you're, you've actually fallen into a place where you're looking for false security. We may not be guilty of the same kind of amassing of unjust wealth, but we can get dangerously close to the security of trusting in the things of this world rather than trusting in God himself. You see, it goes back to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. Are you living by faith in God's security and God's provision? You may have nice things, you may have a nice house, you, but are you still trusting in God to be your security and your provider? Woe number three, ruthless power. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. God condemns Babylon for building its empire on violence and bloodshed. The Lord looks at the ruthlessness of the Babylonians and and ultimately their king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, listen, it's all going to go up in smoke. It's all going to... They thought they were building something that will last forever. 
I was in Jordan, I don't know, five, six years ago, in Amman, Jordan, and they took me into one of these, um, these sites high up on a mountain, and literally, the, 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 they, they can show, they had different layers from different empires that had conquered that part of the Middle East and put a, a, a great building on top of this, of, this, of, this, of this mountain and said, we are the greatest, and they literally showed, oh yeah, 4,000 years ago, it was this empire, 3,000, 2,000, 1,000, 500 years ago, and you could literally see the rubble on top of each other. And it was so sobering to be like, they thought they were the greatest. And then they came and beat them and said, no, we're the greatest. And, and it just went, it goes on and on and on. What they're doing, Babylon, what they're doing, God says, is they're simply providing fuel. They're building these buildings, saying we're the greatest. They're building fuel for the fire of God's judgment that will consume it all. And so it will be for all of those who reject the way of faith and choose the way of pride. He will punish sin and set things right. The fourth woe, shameless exploitation. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. The Babylonians shamelessly exploited others for their gain. Here it's talking about using alcohol to take advantage of people sexually. Sin causes us, listen, Sin causes us to lose respect for the dignity of other people, especially their bodies. People are seen as objects to be exploited shamelessly. This is obvious in the multi-billion dollar porn industry. But it's also obvious in the forms of human trafficking that go on in our world. Number of countries. It's obvious in the mistreatment of refugees who flee their country because of famine or war or even persecution and they're treated like animals, not people. All of these are an appalling lack of regard for the dignity of others and it's, it's, it's behavior that's rooted in a belief that we can live our lives apart from being accountable to God. That we can do whatever we want on earth. It doesn't matter even to our own flesh and blood. And God says, I see what you're doing, Babylon. I see what you're doing, humanity. I will hold you accountable for not holding bodies in high regard, the bodies made in my own image. And then it gets kind of weird for some of us. Because God holds them and condemns them for the cruelty, not just to humans, but to the cruelty of animals and even exploiting the earth. Verse 17 the violence done to Lebanon, that's where the cedar trees were. And, and, and it's historically known. Babylon went through and they raised down all the trees of Lebanon to build these big buildings and, and fortresses. The violence done to Lebanon, meaning to the trees, will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth. You might be thinking, isn't that liberal theology to be talking about creation care? It is if, it's an, if that's an end in and of itself. But it's not. Our goal isn't to preserve the earth because the earth is all there is. We care for creation because it belongs to God and he made us caretakers of it. This shouldn't be controversial, guys. It shouldn't be. What did God tell Adam and Eve? Here's the earth. Tend and take care of it. That, that, that hasn't changed, does, has it, does it? 
We still are called to tend and take care of the earth. And Babylon abused that power and ravages the land and ravages everything alive, including humanity. And God says, for all the shame you brought on other people and the earth itself, verse 16, shame will be brought on to you. Woe number five. The woe of worthless idols. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! In many ways, this last woe was a culmination of all the previous ones. You see, the ultimate expression of pride and arrogance, that's back up in verse 4, Babylon is puffed up with pride. The ultimate expression of pride and living life apart from God is, is, is rooted in worshiping worthless idols. The Babylonians made idols from wood and stone and then they added some gold and silver to it and then they would put them on a stand and say, Behold our gods! Teach us, O gods! And you would say, See, that's silly. We don't worship gods. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with the idol issue, okay? And my response is, Don't we? Don't we worship idols? Yeah, we don't. Most of us don't have wooden statues in our home. But don't we make other things into idols? There's a church member, a good friend of mine, who has sh- he shared his testimony a number of times that, that when he was younger, he was addicted to his work. He worked 80, 90 hours a week for many years. He literally said, I worshiped money. And then God got a hold of his heart and radically changed him. Some of us make our body image into an idol, or our marriage, or our children or our parents, or whatever, or or it could be anything, music, sports. You see, anything that's a good thing, we can turn it into an ultimate thing, and that's when it becomes an idol. And can I just ask you, do you know the idols that you're prone to worship? Do you know them? Can you name them? Here, Here, let me give you four core idols that many people attach their lives to real quick control control is one of the core idols you know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty control approval approval you know you have an approval idol if your greatest nightmare is rejection and so you'll do whatever it takes to be approved by others you don't want to be rejected comfort is a third one The idol of comfort. You know you have a comfort idol if your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. And it's overwhelming. Why? Because you you have to have comfort to feel like your your life is meaningful. Comfort can be an idol. The fourth one is power. You know you have a power idol if your greatest nightmare is humiliation. You know the problem with idols? They deceive you. They're inherently deceptive. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? Idols are self-deceiving. They blind us to our own helplessness. We don't even know it. That's the weirdest thing. You say, at least I'm not like the Babylonians and I don't worship a wooden, thing, a wooden statue. Well, maybe that would be better because then you could say, that is an idol. But when we hang out together, I, I could never even know what your idol is. 
You'll never even know what mine is unless we actually talk about it. Unless I actually invite you into my life to be able to see my blind spots and me yours. You see, idols tell us, they're, they're deceiving, they tell lies. They say, I can make you happy. I can make you, I can give you life meaning. I can give your life hope. Listen, the idol that you love does not love you back. Idols always demand more than you can give. They don't keep their promises. Anything that you worship other than God will ultimately suck your life out of you and crush you. But God is speaking here. He's speaking to the Babylonians. He's speaking to all of us saying, listen, there is a God who hears and speaks and acts and he's not fashioned out of wood and stone made of created things. He is the creator. He is the God of truth and justice. A God who reigns over all creation. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the Lord, Yahweh, is the only God who loves you even when you fail him. He's the only God who died for you even when you rejected him. And he never lies and he never fails. And God is saying, worship that God. This God. Not these worthless idols. So make no mistake, God will punish evil. evil. Lesson number two, don't be mistaken, we are all guilty of evil. You say, what do we learn from all these woes? Aren't they about Babylon and how he's going to hold them accountable? I mean, it's specifically for them, right? But it's, evil to, it's easy to think, oh, those evil Babylonians, they deserve judgment. Their judgment is certain. They were full of pride and, and violence and idolatry. They are evil. It's easy to come to that conclusion. But if that's your mindset... You've missed the point. You've missed the point. We're all guilty. The source of evil inside of them is the same source of evil inside of us. Listen, every time we see something wrong in our world or in our personal lives, isn't our knee jerk reaction to blame someone else? It's someone else's fault. It's their fault for this wrong. It's my mom's fault, right? It's my dad's fault for what they did. It's my kid's fault. If they would just obey, my life would be better. It's, it's my boss's fault. If you wouldn't be so demanding, right? If you wouldn't be so rough. It's, it's the Republicans' fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's people who are different racially's fault. It's everyone's fault. It's just not my fault. We do this all the time. We all have sin in our hearts of pride that says, I'm right you're wrong. Listen to this quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a, a Russian novelist. He, re, he said this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and if only it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That's where he starts. He's saying, listen, if only it was easy to separate the evil people from the good people, and if only we could literally destroy them. He said, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
We want to destroy evil. We want to be done with evil. We want to be like, we want to look at the Babylonians and be off with their heads. Be done. The problem is, as soon as you say off with their heads, you mean off with my head and your head. Who wants to destroy his own heart? You see, this is a, what he's sharing is a profoundly Christian understanding of the human heart. The problem is not those people out there. The problem is not the Babylonians or the liberals or the conservatives or those who are different racially. No, Christianity says the problem is in here. What is the sin that causes so much evil in the world? It starts right here with me. It's you. It's the sin in our hearts. And it affects every person and it infects every culture and any system that you might attach yourself to or might be reading or might be appealing to you that does not begin with that basic premise is not a Christian premise. It's not a Christian foundation. The moment you start declaring that those are the evil ones out there, you're actually becoming just like the Babylonians. Because that's rooted in pride and idolatry. Habakkuk was moving in that direction. Remember remember in chapter 1, verse 13, he he says of God, why do you look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? He was thinking, God, there's got to be scales of righteousness and you can't allow the the one more wicked to destroy the one who's, who's less wicked. And God says, wait, wait, is there someone who's not wicked? Is there someone who's truly righteous? Show me. God is calling us to to humility and repentance here. He is a just God who will punish evil. Injustice might seem to prevail, but it won't last forever. Justice will be served. Sometimes here on earth, sometimes on the last day. Sometimes here on earth, let me just say this, I'll move on. Often God uses the self-defeating nature of sin to accomplish his justice. The self-defeating, you see, sin always carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. That's why the psalmist will say uh, that the evil ones, they would dig a pit for their enemies and then they fall into it themselves. It's a biblical principle. Sin ha- it carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. That's why Paul can say, don't be mocked. You reap what you sow. Sin is, is, is often like a boomerang. You throw it thinking you're, it's going out, but then it comes right back for you. Sin destroys us. And if it doesn't destroy us now, if evil doesn't cause such harm now, ultimately, God will punish it in the end. Judgment is certain. So, what does that leave us? But where is hope in this passage? Come on, give us some good news. There is good news. God's sovereignty and glory give hope to guilty hearts. You might have noticed I skipped over A key verse, verse 14, right in the middle, kind of sandwiched in the middle of these five woes. And then verse 20 at the conclusion of this vision. These two verses are beams of light shining into the darkness of this passage. Verse 20, after talking about the idols, but the Lord is in his holy temple at all the earth. Keep silence before him. This verse infuses our lives with hope because it shows us that God really is sovereign. 
The Lord is not like the Babylonian idols. They were made of stone and wood. But Habakkuk cried out to the God who is, who is, who lives, who, who exists. And he listens and he responds and he speaks and he acts and he will make things right. Why? Because he reigns over the earth from his holy temple. Meaning, he is in control even when everything seems out of control. Do you understand that? Listen, no matter how bad things are, God ends this with this verse because he wants us to know and to know that we know that God is in control. He does not take breaks. He doesn't punch in and punch out. He doesn't lose himself scrolling on Facebook, forgetting what he was doing. He doesn't go to sleep at night. He doesn't lose track of you. He doesn't he doesn't do any of those things. He is in charge. He is in control. He never gets distracted. And that's what he's saying here. The Lord is in this holy temple that all the earth keeps silent before him. He is reigning. He's, in, he's fully in control, not partially in control. Why do, we, why do we think sometimes we want a God who's partially in control? Someone this week told me a good illustration. He's like, it's like it's like in the Princess Bride where, where the main character looks like he's dead and they bring someone to help him and, and they're like, no, you can't help him, he's dead. And the guy goes, ah, ha, ha, he's only mostly dead. <laughs> what? It's funny because it's silly. There is no mostly dead. And there is no mostly in control. There's no such thing as God who is mostly sovereign or mostly in control. He is or he isn't. That's it. You take Christianity or you take some other religion. That's fine. Do you believe that? I know some, I know some of us are wrestling and we say, man, well, well, why would God use the unrighteous people to accomplish his will? It makes no sense. How could he be sovereign in that? Why would he ordain evil Babylonians to bring judgment on his people? And here's, here's what I would say. If God waited to use righteous people to accomplish his will, he'd be waiting forever. Wouldn't he? God uses unrighteous people to accomplish his will because what other kind of people are there? Last year we studied the book of Genesis. For a number of years we did. And we, we looked at the life of Jacob. And I, I, I love Jacob's life. I'm drawn to his life because he, he's a wreck, right? He, he's, I was like, man, if God can use this guy, he's a deceiver. He lied to his dad. He steals his brother's inheritance. He runs away from his family. He, he does all these shady business dealings. It's a wreck. And yet through all of those things, he ends up marrying Rachel and having children. And he ultimately preserves the messianic seed and Jesus will come through his line. Was Jacob's life a failure? In some ways, yeah. Did God have to revert to plan B to figure out how he was going to make it work? No. The Messiah is not plan B. So was it okay that he lied and he cheated and he lived such a selfish life for most of his life? No, it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay at all. He was wrong. He shouldn't have done those things. But God is sovereign. In fact, God is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence. Which is it? Are we responsible for our choices or is God sovereign over them? And the answer is yes. 
You are responsible for the choices you make. The good and the bad, that's on you. That's on me. And yet God has a plan where he rules and he overrules in all the evil and all the suffering to accomplish his purposes for you and the world. And if, you, if you're struggling like so many do, it, it, let me give you a theological term that helps maybe put this uh, together. There's a, a term that theologian, theologians use called an, called an antimony. Antimony. A-N-T-I-M-O-N-Y. Antimony. And antimony is where there's an apparent contradiction between two truths or two claims. An example from science, kind of my background, in Maryland I took physics, a couple of physics classes, and I, I, was, I was amazed and mesmerized when we started talking about the nature of light and how light is a particle. And, and, they, and they can see how light is a particle and how it works as a particle, and it's pretty stunning. And then they can see, wait a minute, what? Light is also a wave. But things are meant to be particles or a wave. And then you see a light can be both. And, and it took a genius like Albert Einstein to help us even figure some of this out. I don't even know enough to explain it all. Well, what is it? Is it one or the other? It has to be one or the other. Science says something is this or that, and science has to admit, we don't understand, but it's both. It really is both. And depending on how you look at it, shows what it is. What? That's ridiculous. I know. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. That's how God's sovereignty works with human responsibility. He's in complete control. Everything happens according to his will, and yet every single person is responsible for their choices. We're not puppets. We're not robots. Listen, this is good news. God's sovereignty infuses our lives with hope. Because even though the evil in our hearts and evil in our world continues, bad things continue, but overall God says, I am ruling and overruling to accomplish my divine purposes. Trust me that I'm in control. The second beam of hope is in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is this about? Every single person on the planet is grasping for glory. We all want glory in some way. It's why we pursue money. It's why we pursue our bodies looking better. It's why we pursue sex or hobbies. It's we all want glory. The Babylonians were hungry for glory. It was their selfish pursuit of glory that led to their downfall. Verse 16, your glory will be turned to shame. God is saying to us, there's only one glory that can satisfy our hearts. And that's the glory of God. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. The glory of God. That, the glory of God is, is it's the beauty and the honor and the approval of God. It's the love of God. God is predicting a time when His glory would fill the earth. A time when His glory would be something that we could actually experience that would fill us. Well, when will this happen? How can we experience true glory? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the glory of God. He is the beauty and the honor and the love of God on display. God has made himself known. He offers us true glory. We don't have to seek it in money or relationships or careers or whatever else we're looking to. But sadly, like the Babylonians, we keep looking for it in all the wrong places. And so we experience shame rather than glory. We experience condemnation rather than honor. We deserve the cup in the Lord's hand. Verse 16 the cup of God's wrath. That's God's judgment against sin. We are guilty. We deserve that justice. We deserve to drink the cup of justice. So then how can the glory of God shine in our hearts? In order for us to experience his glory, Jesus had to empty himself of his glory. And that same glory, Philippians 2, Jesus Though he was in the nature of God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and died even death on a cross for us. Hebrews 12, why did he endure the cross? Why did he endure the shame of the cross? For the joy set before him, you and I. Jesus endured all the judgment of God against sin on the cross, the judgment you deserved and I deserved. He endured the utter shame of nakedness, Right, literally physical nakedness and shame, rejection and humiliation. He literally took all the woes of Habakkuk 2, the, the woes that, that apply to us. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly. That's why when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass by me. Why did he talk about a cup? Because he knew what exactly what Habakkuk was referring to, that he would have to drink the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath to the bitter dregs, because that's what you and I deserve for our sin and for our evil. We're all guilty of evil, and God must punish evil. And the only way for God to crush evil without crushing us was allow his son to take our place. To take our place. To die on our behalf. He took all of our guilt and all of our shame and then he rose from the dead as we sang earlier on the third day, right? Everything shook and he rose victorious and he proved that now by turning to him in faith and repentance and faith, you can experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't have to walk in shame. You don't have to experience just woe upon woe. You can know the glory of the Lord because Jesus will shine it into your life. Right, right now, his very life will be in you and with you. And he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he loved you he had to because he loved to he loved you and you get all of his honor because he took all of your shame and you get all the what all the things that glory represents acceptance and forgiveness and freedom and joy and righteousness that's the gospel that's the good news do you need to trust in christ right now maybe you're watching you're here you're thinking i i want glory real glory jesus offers it Freedom from the condemnation of evil, fully acceptance. You will never experience a judgment in the future because Jesus took it on the cross. And if you're already a Christian, can I just say, this is our unshakable hope. Evil will not last forever. Don't be a part of the problem by blaming everyone else. Admit, I'm a part of the problem. I'm a part of the issue. And that actually frees you to be a part of the solution. To serve others rather than to seek to be served. 
to love others rather than seeking them to give you what you want and need and to know that no matter what happens, Jesus will return one day and the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And it will be glorious and it will be good and God's justice will be fully done. Remember and rest in this, Christian, because the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We pray that you would give us hope today. That we would know how to live in the uncertainty of these evil times. By humbling ourselves before you and, and crying out, Lord, we, we are part of the evil. The dividing line runs right through us. And yet in Christ, in Jesus, we have a living hope. Jesus, would you be the one thing that we cling to today? Lord, would we abandon all other idols, all other things that we look to to find security? And would we cling to you today as a church? Because our world needs Christians who will shine the light of Christ, not shine the light of me or my success or my money or my relationships or my goodness. Lord, we want to abandon those things and say, Christ, you are all we have and we believe you're all we need. God, help us right now. I pray, this church, I pray that we would rise up. That we would rise up knowing that your judgment is certain. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We believe this. Help our unbelief. Help us to walk out in the humility and even the assurance that if we have you, Jesus, we have it all. We really do have it all. And one day you will give us your kingdom to share and enjoy. We thank you for this and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.